Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We speak today to Farhad Abbasov, who's the CEO of Millennial Lithium. Now, they are a TSXV uh, developer with assets in Argentina, very advanced stage, feasibility in hand, and they're looking to get to some kind of conclusion around the financing options available to them to get this thing built out. They've got a good track record of having built, financed and created shareholder value previously uh, in quite a meaningful way. So um, we talked to them about what the plans are here, what the red flags are and how they deliver that. We also get into a little discussion around the demand picture which seems extremely uh, rosy when you look at the short, medium and long term uh, Chinese and European subsidies, infrastructure builds, automotive uh, manufacturers spending up to $500 billion on their infrastructure alone. But when we started talking about the supply side, the story started to unpick slightly in that getting financed for lithium projects at the moment is quite tricky. It would seem uh, about 20 companies, major companies, have either shelved uh, projects or have been un- unable to raise the financing that they want and that's not even talking about the juniors who are really struggling so interesting conversation enjoy the chat Farhad how are you doing sir good good thank you Matt how are you doing yeah not so bad not so bad we thought we'd uh, give you a call though uh, there's been a little bit of flurry in the market around um, battery metals uh, companies off the back of a statement by Elon Musk uh, about a week and a half ago about nickel um and uh, he's starting to look towards that so um but he you know obviously he's a big fan of lithium too so we wanted to see what's going on with you um so let, let's let's um let's um talk about that in a minute but could you for people new to this um story could you give them a woman overview of your business then i'll kind of pick it up from there yeah yeah sure man so so you know millennial lithium um, has advanced one of its uh, projects in in south america um, called Pastas Grandes in Salta Province of Argentina to the to the level to the stage where it's ready to go into construction in the next few months. Um, it is probably one of the most advanced lithium brine projects in the world. Whereas we completed a feasibility study, we secured um, the approval of our environmental permits. Uh, we've consolidated our land position and uh, we've been um, operating our pilot uh, uh, pilot ponds and the lining plant, etc. In the for the last 18 months or so, so we're basically ready to go into the next stage, which will be the financing of uh, full construction and, of course, a start of construction and then hitting production hopefully by 2022, early 2023. Okay, th- thanks for that. Um, one of the reasons I also wanted to speak to you was just get an idea of the macro for lithium at the moment. Like I say, in the context of this flurry around battery metals, which is going on over the last couple of weeks. So if, if you don't mind, let, let's start with the um, demand fundamentals. If you, if you could share with us your thoughts on this, or, you know, the short term and the long term on the demand. Yeah, sure, man. Look, um, the demand picture in the long term, um, and long term in our language is about four, three to five years, um, is um, intact. In other words, it's still as strong as before COVID. Uh, if you would put this in numbers, we're talking about on, on average about a million tons of uh, lithium demand by 2025. This is, this again, average estimate, average, average forecast uh, by various analysts. Um, you know, obviously there are ones who are below the, the below 1 million uh, mark. The other ones are talking about more than a million 
tons a year. But I would say a million tons by 2025 is probably a safe number if we look at all the developments and all the incentives, subsidies, et cetera, that we're going to talk about momentarily. So the long-term picture hasn't changed. Um, and if you look at the you know, last few months and probably going forward uh, until you know, 2020, we'll see that, of course, COVID restrictions and all the lockdowns and all these um, kind of uh, virus-related uh, consequences have had significant impact on everything, including car sales, um, including EV sales. Now, if you look at lithium demand, it's right now primarily driven by electric vehicle sales, but there obviously, you know, there's other use for um, uh, lithium as well, you know, use lithium batteries in energy storage facilities and, and many other applications in uh, electronic devices, et cetera. But, you know, the real demand driver here, the largest, I would say, uh, factor here is, of course, the EV sales. And EV sales in the last, well, all car sales, I should say, in the last few months have fallen dramatically in some countries by 70, 80% for obvious reasons. People cannot go out. And even if they can, they're not going to rush out and buy cars in the middle of this mayhem. Having said that, if you look at the most recent data in West European countries, in North America, in China, and in Japan, I'm talking about basically post uh COVID restriction relaxation you know, period. This is basically, I would say, June, July um, uh, uh, sales data. You will see that EV sales have picked up dramatically. In some cases, they're actually even um, higher than the, the same period last year. So they're, they're up by 70, 80% year on year, which is incredible considering all these uh, restrictions, all these issues that we've been facing in the uh, economy at large. So. That is a you know a very good sign of things to come. That tells us, and as soon as the economies worldwide uh, open up, as soon as the, the life goes back to quasi normal, at least you know the the only sales um, you know in in the car sales, I say among the different car types that will take off will be EV sales. In other words, that will be the trend uh, that ha that had been in place before COVID restrictions were put in place, but it looks like it will resume as soon as those restrictions are lifted. I think that's a very important um, factor here, the very important issue, because um, that, that, is, that is what everything else is predicated upon, you know, how the EV sales will actually um, go on, how the, the sales will perform going forward, especially in the next few years. Now, um, on the demand side, I also want to talk, before we come to supply, that on the demand side, it's also very important to look at infrastructure, availability of infrastructure and the cost of that infrastructure and so forth. And it's very important to look at what the countries have been doing again, even in the last few months, despite all these restrictions. So I'll start with, um, with char charging stations, for example. So there have been tremendous uh, efforts to actually build up infrastructure, specifically uh, charging stations throughout the world, and especially in the countries that have obviously larger uh, EV sales, so a larger EV um, uh, availability and so forth. So if you look at China, the Chinese government announced that in the next uh, couple of years, they're going to be installing 78,000 new charging stations throughout the country. Some of them will be actual supercharging stations and, and so forth. So that actually makes it easy, obviously, for EV owners that incentivizes them and it removes quite a bit of, I would say, uh, pushback or obstacles or psychological barriers that some of the buyers have when they say, look, yeah, I would love to have an EV, but look, uh, you know, in my neighborhood, there's only one charging station and I don't want to be wasting my time waiting for 
for my car to be charged and so forth and so on, especially in areas where, you know, there's a, a really a lack of um, lack of houses, individual houses, basically we're talking about urban areas, downtown, downtown areas where people live in apartment buildings and there's, there's not enough charging stations. So I think the fact that China and also West Europe and, and North America as well, they're going to introduce or uh, install a lot more uh, charging station capacity will really tackle that or address that concern that a lot of potential EV buyers have had for, for years. Um, so that is, I think, very important. The other thing is, again, I'm talking about the, all of these are recent news. I'm not talking about it, you know, last year or even earlier this year. In the last couple of months, we've also seen significant announcements coming on the subsidy side. And these are, again, major EV markets. So we're talking about West Europe, we're talking North America, Canada specifically, and China and Japan. So Chinese, who originally, as you may remember, Matt, I think we, we touched on this last year, um, they decided earlier last year to remove all the subsidies that it had in place for a long time, for EVs, of course. And then that had, a, unfortunately, a very negative impact on EV sales that the Chinese government realized that that was not a very good idea. So they actually reintroduced them. And now uh, this month, I think actually, sorry, last, uh, last month in July, they announced that they're going to extend it until 2022. Um, that, that it is very important, especially for cars that are uh, a bit pricier. Um, in other words, that, that about $40,000, then there's actually even more substantial subsidy in China for those cars. So again, that will help uh, EV sales um, and that will boost EV sales in China. When you look at the Western picture or the picture in Western countries, you will see that a very similar uh, situation is developing there as well. So we're looking at Canada that has introduced significant subsidies in Germany. Germany has got like almost two, two and a half billion dollars in subsidies, specifically for EV sales altogether. I think if you look at the combination of uh, um, you know, manufacturer subsidies and the government subsidies, in some instances in Germany can get up to 9,000 euros in subsidies per car, so, which is substantial, of course. And again, all of these countries have also announced that they're going to increase and expand their charging station infrastructure network. Um, again, going back to it, it will, uh, it will address a certain concern as well. Now, on top of all of this, Matt, um, again, continuing on, on the, the demand side, is, um, is further development of battery technologies. You know, they're becoming uh, more efficient. They're becoming, you know, more efficient in terms of uh, energy density, et cetera. And as you mentioned, of course, uh, you know, Tesla is in, in the limelight as usual, but also, you know, Elon Musk and uh, that, you know, talked about nickel batteries and, and all of that. Again, the good thing about all of these different battery technologies is that almost all of them, 90, 95% of them uh, have lithium or will have lithium in them one way or another. So, for our industry, I think it's very positive. Um, you know, some of the um, elements, some of the minerals um, used in, in batteries have been either reduced or, you know, completely removed for a number of reasons. Uh, but lithium is still there. Lithium is an integral part of almost all the future technologies at this point that, that we know of. So that is, that is a demand slash, I would say, infrastructure uh, situation. So I think that, that's actually quite good and, and quite fulsome. And it's you know, backing up a lot of what we're hearing from elsewhere. I, yeah, again, what are some of the numbers uh, that we've seen with regards to automotive manufacturers spending and building new, this new battery metal uh, infrastructure, this, this ecosystem, you know, from 300 billion to 500 billion, you know, you pick a number somewhere, somewhere in there. 
I'm sure you'll be safe. Um, so the government's, from around the world, decision to back up the automotive industry as a big supplier, big you know tax revenues, big, big industry partners uh, in, yeah. the, in those countries, obviously very, very important. But it, it also strikes me as that, these governments taking the opportunity to, you know, get get behind this whole green thematic, which seems to be really starting to build some kind of momentum uh, for, for sure. But all that counts for naught if there's no supply. So yeah. I, the other thing we're seeing, I'm reading a lot of them about at the moment is a lot of lithium companies, and I do want to talk about your company in a minute, but I, I just want to talk generically or macro for now is there's some companies who are not able to get financed for simple things like pilot yeah. plants, let, let alone commercial operations. Some companies going bust um, and or being indefinitely delayed. So so what's going on on, on the supply side, just get, given the rosy picture you've just painted on the demand side? Yeah, it's obviously that's an important part of the equation. Um, just one note on what you mentioned before in terms of uh, demand. I mean, those numbers actually... Uh, kind of probably hold true. I mean, if you look at Canada, Canadian government expects that the EV business um, as, as a whole will probably reach about $152 billion uh, of value in the next few years. So uh, hence, all of these governments are paying special attention to the industry. So you're absolutely correct in that regard. Um, and Canada obviously is not the largest EV market, as you can imagine. So if you know that's how much value they see uh, in Canada, imagine you know the size of the industry in West Europe, in China, and the U.S. as well. So, look um, on 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 the supply side, the situation uh, I would say is dramatically different from what we had even a year ago. Um, I mean, we still have oversupply situation to be to be kind of um, you know precise about the current situation. Having said that, a lot of future and a lot of current projects have been, as you mentioned, delayed, canceled indefinitely. Put on care maintenance, or just went bust because they couldn't fund, um, you know, uh, financing uh, uh, enough capital to continue and so forth. So look, I mean, the last I checked, and that was uh, early this morning, uh, we we have about 20, 20 projects that have been put on the back shelf. Some of them on back, you know, back, uh, you know, uh, back burner. Some of them actually completely shelved, I should say, right? So. So we're looking at a whole bunch of projects across the spectrum. So it's not just hard rock. We're looking at some brine projects. We're looking at some, you know, most of them lithium carbonate projects, but a lot of uh, hydroxide projects. All of them, uh, all these 20, again, from Australia all the way to North America and down to South America have been shelved or delayed for one reason or another. The reasons are multiple, Matt. I mean, I just want to maybe touch on this for a few moments. I mean, one is, of course, the market situation. As I said, there, there was quite a bit of oversupply, especially coming from spodumene or hard rock side. Um, and that also caused a tremendous, uh, I would say, overexpansion of conversion capacity in China. Um, and that in turn led to obviously this, you know, the, the slump in the price of lithium and of course the industry and so forth. Now, most of these cancellations are really caused by the fact that lithium price has uh, has declined dramatically. So we're looking at about $7,000 per uh, per ton for a battery grade lithium carbonate equivalent. So uh, that is down almost, what is it, 70%, maybe more from 20,000 or above that per ton in China, for example, only about a year and a half ago, two years ago, perhaps. Now, 
that was the main reason. But there are also other um, uh, reasons there too. I mean, some of these companies, for example, there's a project in North America that uh, actually started production, uh, sorry, construction. They already uh, secured funding and so forth. And construction started, uh, you know, in full swing. And then they found out that there was an issue with uh, um, uh, with under budgeting for for the whole project. So in other words, uh, they they had a huge hole that they had to fill to the tune of about four hundred million dollars. And uh, obviously, they couldn't fill that. And the whole project. Um, you know, got delayed to say the least, meaning that you know, eventually maybe someone will come in and take over that project and try to restart it and so forth. But for now, it's been obviously uh, put on the back burner. Now, there were a lot of other projects that were also quite advanced and they're ready to go into construction with large backing too from SQM, from Albemarle, both in South America and in Australia. Again, for the same reasons that they looked at the market, they thought that, you know, they don't want to you know, put even more pressure, downward pressure on lithium price by, you know, producing more. So they decided to delay those two. And then there were others in South America, for example, and in, um, and in Australia, whereas they just, their cost structure did not allow them to proceed. Even if they could find uh, financing, they understood that uh, on the current circumstances, it would be very difficult, if not impossible for them to actually produce at, at even break even, let alone at a profit. So we're looking at at least 20 projects. These are both uh, controlled by public listed and private companies worldwide. These are advanced projects I'm talking about. Now, Matt, I wanna you know, kind of distinguish these 20 projects from development projects that are owned by juniors and so forth. There is even more of them out there, okay? I'm not even counting those. Uh, there are probably another 20, 30 that are struggling on them, you know, uh, mostly because of financing issues. Um, so we're looking at the situation where the price has come to the point where a lot of even current producers are hurting. So they're being squeezed. And um, we think that we're reaching probably the bottom in the next few months. We will reach the bottom because it's almost completely, you know, uh, inconceivable to, to imagine this situation going for too long, especially the demand picture, as we discussed, um, you know, uh, it holds, holds, uh, holds on until, let's say, you know, 2021, 2022 and beyond that. And if that's the case, then not only do we need all the production coming or being you know, online today, but we also need, uh, as I mentioned, almost 600,000 tons of additional lithium supply coming online between now and 2025. Okay. Um, so, can I, so can we're I looking a, at a very interesting situation right now. We certainly are. Can I ask a question, though? Because, like I say, the, the demand picture says one thing. This The financing on the supply side so it paints another picture completely. So I appreciate some of these companies have perhaps technically got it wrong and, you know, miscal miscalculated for whatever reason, um, you know, laid into the project. But as, me as an investor, what, how do you think I should be viewing this? Is that picture on the supply side, this lack of finance, lack of interest in finance in lithium companies, is should I be concerned? Do they know something that I don't? Um, or should I see this as actually, if there's a company out there, and I bet you're going to tell me you're one of them, can get things right, it's a great opportunity. Yeah, uh, I think Matt, that is, um, that, that is a critical question that all investors should ask and uh, I should be asking right now because when you're absolutely right, there's a huge dichotomy there between uh, demand and, uh, and, and supply situation, most importantly, the price of lithium. Um, but at the same time, it makes a lot of sense if you kind of dissect it a bit further. When you look at the situation and you say, 
look, I mean, uh, what, what, what's happening here? You know, how come that, you know, we expect so much demand, but at the same time, you know, the, uh, you know, there, there's, there's not a lot of financing, not a lot of capital flowing into these companies. I would say one of the simplest and probably the most fundamental reasons for that is the cost structure of these projects. So if a year ago, let alone two, uh, two and a half years ago, you know, investors, I'm talking both big and individual investors would basically throw money at all these lithium companies. Today, they're a lot more selective. Today, they pay a lot more attention to, to the detail of the project itself, not only just the hype, not only a macro picture, but they want to understand the project. They want to understand technical aspects of the project because that's what dictates um, the, the cost structure. So if you look at the whole situation, you will see that a lot of hard rock producers um, have very high cost structure. In other words, they, they produce concentrate, they ship it to China, they convert it in China. If you look at the whole thing, we're looking at um, probably about uh, between eight and $10,000 per ton of operating costs. At a current lithium price of 7,000 and still declining, I mean, that is not a very good, interesting proposition for any investor. So it is highly unlikely that anyone will be going into hard rock, at least in that part of the, of the world. Now, with the brine situation, there are plenty of brine projects there, um, let's say in South America, um, in Chile, in Argentina. But again, now they're not just jumping into any brine project. They're looking at the brine project's merits. Um, you know, they're good projects, for example, I'm talking about development projects in, in Chile, but they have tremendous permitting issues. It will take years and years before they overcome these issues. So there's a real risk there. Now, if you look at Argentina, the situation with permitting in some of these Argentinian provinces is much better. Uh, however, you, you still have technical issues with some of these projects. So that's why they're becoming a lot more detailed in terms of their due diligence or their understanding of the project. So if you look at the brand projects, let's stick with Argentina, for example, for, example, uh, for instance, they will want to know what the cost structure is. They want to know whether they can actually, pre if they, you know, smart investors look at the worst case scenario. We as a management team, we always look at worst case scenario because we're the ones who are stuck with the project, so to speak, if, if we cannot handle the worst case situation. So the worst case scenario is that the price of lithium stays at this low level or perhaps declines even further. Can a project, can your you know, uh, investee project, investee company operate profitable at that level? And that, I think, is the bottom line. That is a real fundamental question that investors should be asking themselves and then looking at the project to, to understand whether that particular project can actually meet that criterion or not. Because if not, then you're taking tremendous risk on because now you're hoping that lithium price will actually spike back up to above 10,000, maybe even 13, 15,000 for your project to make money. So that's why I say, you know, now you can actually, you know, separate wheat from chaff and, and understand what, what is fluff, what is real by looking at the fundamentals of the project and, um, and not just technical side, not just cost structure, but also whether this project can be put into operation, whether you can permit it, whether you have all other, you know, absolutely, you know, important key success factors in place for this project to, to be profitable in the worst case scenario. So I think you will see um, funds flowing into the lithium industry in the next few months, but it will be really select, I would say, a handful of projects worldwide. Um, you know, that, that will, again, those that can literally today operate profitably at the current lithium price. Because if you look at um, analysts, both from, 
you know, the investment community and uh, from, from the industry itself, you will see that some of them are quite pessimistic. They're thinking that, you know, these low lithium prices are here to stay for quite some time. So if you go with that, you know, uh, school of thought, then you're going to make sure that whatever project you're investing in obviously can operate uh, profitably at that level. I agree, I agree with you on the, your comment with regards to fundamentals. I mean, it, it doesn't apply to gold, doesn't apply to silver, uh, precious metals in, in, in general. But you, you guys, it really does matter. Um, so that, you know, do your, I always say to people, do, you know, do your, do your homework. So well, let's find out a little bit about you. Okay, let's, let's, let's try to work out where you've got to since we last spoke a couple of months ago. When we spoke, you'd got your uh, EIA uh, approval, or DIA as they call it, locally, um, which has obviously moved things forward. And I think that the, the kind of big, uh, big item, big ticket item that we wanted to deal with was where are you with your financing? You were having some conversations. Has anything moved forward on that front? Yeah, Matt. Um, look, I mean, we, we got that uh, EIA approval almost a month and a half ago now. So, uh, so since then, we actually, uh, well, the two things. One, we had been in talks before EIA obviously was, was approved. So uh, that, the, the com- I wouldn't say conversation. This is a real, very uh, intensive process that, is, uh, that has been going on. It's still on, despite, again, COVID restrictions, but, you know, all the due diligence, et cetera, on the part of the large investors, and some of the strategics um, is still taking place. Um, uh, short of actually the side visit to Salta, everything else is you know, uh, you know, taking place as we actually expected. So in other words, um, you know, our financing structure that uh, called for strategic investment, offtake, you know, investment from offtakers um, and debt and some other equity investors as well, all of that is still in place, intact. But what we've seen since the EIA approval is even renewed interest from some other investors. Uh, these are, uh, you know, a handful of royalty streaming companies, uh, royalty fund financing companies that have approached us and they've shown interest in the project because again, there are only a handful of projects worldwide that have been permitted to this level that we have with the feasibility study completed and so forth with a very large reserve base with, uh, with a proven reserve, but also proven technology that we can, you know, use to uh, produce lithium. Um, so, so we've now actually enhanced our financing structure. So in addition to those groups that I mentioned, the strategic groups, um, these are large industrial groups, uh, off-takers who are obviously ready to, uh, you know, buy our uh, product and, and, and put up some capital in lieu of that. And um, we, we also had some newcomers to the table. And we think they, they will also be part of this overall financing structure, overall financing plan. Um, now, our timelines are still intact since we spoke last time. We still think that you know, this fall we're going to have um, uh, one of the major investors um, come in um, into the project or the company, depending on how we structure the deal. And then on the back of it, we want to also um, uh, finish and sign off on our offtake agreement. And then the rest of the financing should be um, finalized by the end of the year. Um, so we've seen quite a bit of interest uh, despite COVID, but since EIA got approved, we, we, we see now even more interest. And, uh, and that I think makes a lot of sense. As I said, if you take this in the, in the context of the cost structure that pro- the pro- our project has, and then the fact that it's quite advanced, and if a potential party, potential investor still believes in lithium uh, theme and lithium uh, trend, 
going forward, then of course uh, it makes a lot of sense to approach companies like ours that you know can demonstrate their ability to actually develop projects. Okay, so how long does that process take? Because that, that's quite a generic answer. What, what I'm trying to get at is, do you have a better sense of the numbers yet, or do you need to wait till people come into country and can get boots on ground and do some more rigorous testing of what you've got? No, we, we have we have the numbers. We know what what's going to happen. I mean, basically want to stick with our feasibility study plan, whereas we'll start with 10,000 ton a year production and then scale it up to full 24,000 tons. So the plan at this point is to actually fund the first 10,000 tons uh, with all the associated infrastructure and everything that is required for it. And uh, for that, we're already putting that financing plan together. So, so that's why we're hoping that, you know, by the end of the year, we'll finish all this. And early next year, we can actually start construction, which will be mostly uh, immediately we'll start building uh, or expanding our evaporation ponds. Um, so yeah, no, we, we, we have very good um, sense of what we're expecting and uh, when when we expect all of this to come in place. Obviously, there they could be some delays and the, 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 the delays have already occurred because of COVID. As I mentioned, the, you know, what we're talking about now should have been done actually by now. Uh, but, you know, it got delayed. But again, uh, the, this were kind of objective reasons that, that they get delayed for. But, um, you know, it's still back on track in terms of actual process. OK, if, given you know that, um, is the cost of this money within the range, the threshold, which you thought it would be? I mean, I mean, maybe you haven't had those conversations yet, but are you getting indications yeah, Matt, look, on the equity side, we think uh, it will be within the range that we expected. In other words, uh, we want to obviously to minimize dilution as much as possible. Um, you know, the, our incentives are, you know, you know, linearly co- correlated and completely aligned with our shareholders because we, we meaning the management, the board, we still own about 10 percent of the stock. So we want to make sure that, you know, we minimize this dilution as much as possible. So. Um, so we're looking at equity um, or quasi-equity instruments as uh, you know the last piece of the puzzle. So we want to bring in substantial debt from exim banks, from various other institutions, as well as uh, offtakes financing through prepayments for the product. Um, and and the strategic investment that will come in, it will take uh, probably a couple of forms. One will be direct in, uh, investment, direct equity investment either at the company level or the project level, and the other part of it will be probably in the form of debt. Um, so ideally, we'd like to increase the debt proportion or debt to equity ratio to about um, 60 to 40 or maybe, maybe even 70 to 30, and, and bring down our overall capex from 450 to below 300 to start with. So in other words, um, you know, what we want to do, Matt, is to get to production with 10,000, 12,000 tons as soon as possible, then to fund any kind of an expansion of production from there um, using our cash flow as much as possible. So that will, I think, be uh, you know, the most we can do right now to maximize shareholder value instead of trying to go all the way to um, you know, 24,000 right off the bat, trying to raise $450 million. That will be very diluted. Okay. No matter how much debt we raise, it will still be very diluted. Okay, so what are you currently doing? Are you just sitting sitting around on your hands waiting for these guys to finish their diligence? Is there anything that you can do with regards to your own optimizations of the projects to ensure it doesn't fall over at the last minute? Yeah, no, no, we, we absolutely, um, you know, it's not sitting idly for sure. So, um, you know, there are some COVID restrictions in Salta, but we can operate. So we can still operate in shifts. 
So, um, so not only have we been running our pilot operations, as you, I think I mentioned last time, Matt, we've already built, completed our uh, pilot processing plan. It's ready to go, but we've decided not to commission it because of these restrictions. We just don't want to have interruptions in the middle of uh, the operations. So what we've been doing, we, we still have launched quite a bit of process work on the, you know, in the plant. In other words, we're, we're checking our process flow sheet right now. We're connecting all the kinds of different equipment. So we, we're trying to make sure that the plant will actually work as designed um, when the time comes to commission it. Um, and this is in addition to a full um, you know, uh, pilot works on the evaporation pond side and Lyman plant and so forth. So that has been going on without any interruption whatsoever. So the plan is actually, is to launch this, um, uh, what we call pilot slash training plant, or commission it in the next few months, as soon as the, you know, the restrictions are relaxed, uh, softened a little bit, and run it regardless of what we do with construction. Because this is, we look at it not only as pilot plan, but it's also a training plan. So that as construction is ongoing, we can actually train, uh, obviously first uh, hire people, but then train them uh, so that there's no, uh, there are no issues there, ready to go uh, as soon as the, uh, the production starts. So all of that is happening. And luckily we have enough capital, enough cash in the bank to actually afford all of this. Um, but also, you know, the, whatever, you know, capital we raise down the road, meaning for construction, some of it will again be committed, of course, to all the pre-development work or pre-construction work as well. But in this, at, the, at, the, at, the, at this stage, we're probably one of the best funded companies. So that allows us actually to continuously operate, continuously improve what we've been doing and not just sit and wait because um, that's the precious time we've been losing. So we were, we're in a very fortunate situation right now. Okay, so I recognize that you have built and sold to significant companies previously. I, I recognize that, but these are different times. These are very different times now. What are you going to do to ensure this thing gets over the line? And when do you think that will be? Look, I mean, um, first of all, I think that we will get this over the line probably by the end of the year. Um, you know, the first quarter next year, the, you know, the latest. The latest. Um, I think what we need to do at this point is two things, frankly. One is to really push all these financing efforts that I, I mentioned earlier. But the second thing, yes, I did mention that we have quite a bit of cash in the bank and we're doing quite a bit of work, but we've... Uh, reduce our cash burn dramatically. So the cash that we have in the bank will allow us to go on for the next two, three years without actually raising any further capital in the market or from anywhere. And that is, I think, critical because, again, uh, you know, one thing is what, what I'm shooting for, what I'm targeting. Uh, the other thing is what if, you know, you have delays, you know, COVID, for example, was completely unexpected. There may be some other, you know, company-specific or region-specific delays and so forth. So we want to make sure that we will stay afloat regardless of that. So we're being very strategic with our cash. Uh, we've been really preserving and uh, uh, very effectively and efficiently in the last few months, especially. So I think those two things, one is, you know, working your tail off, making sure that you can put the whole, uh, you know, financing structure together as soon as possible and preserving as much as ca uh, cash as possible. will probably make this work. I mean, that's what we've done in the past. We've been... Uh, uh, very miserly with our cash and thinking you know the, the strategical long term and you know last time when we were in potash business we were very similar to this situation Matt, where we basically were caught on the tail end of potash uh, industry but we still did very very well compared to almost any other peer um at the time so we actually exited uh, through a uh, through a sale through an m a whereas we in one of the worst markets potash markets in history we still fetched 50 percent premium 
to the stock price at the time. So, so that's the plan. But I think the, the, the real fundamental um, value or the advantage of the project, besides the management's you know, experience and skills, of course, the, you know, the cost structure, the fundamental, fundamentals, the technical and uh, the financial fundamentals of the project itself. Okay. It's been a tough year. You've got, a, yeah. you've got a, few, a few things to get over the line before the end of this year by the sounds of it. But um, look, stay in touch. Let us know how you're getting on with all of these things. I don't think there's much more to do in your case. Um, just need that lithium market recovery. We need to know you can get this financing over the line and hopefully technically no issues. So stay in touch. All right. Thanks a lot, Matt. Good talking to you. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to CruxCast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.